Amen. Good morning, Grace College. What's up? My name is Ben Clawson, and man, it's a pleasure to be here with you guys this morning. I'm not Jacob Smith. I'm typically in the back helping run the home team with Anna Marquina. Come on, home team. Glad you guys are here. Uh, But today, I get the pleasure of being up here with you guys. And man, I'm pumped about it. Um, And before I started working at Grace, it's important that you know... Here's your Bible, Tyler. Absolutely. It's important that you know that I got to marry my dream girl. And I share that with you because today is actually her birthday. And her one birthday wish was that she could hear me preach on God's wrath at Grace College. So, happy birthday, Han. Absolutely. Man, and the next thing that I want you to know about me is going to make some of you go like, oh, roll your eyes. And some of you like, oh, yes, he gets me. And it's this. I'm an Enneagram 3. I don't know if you're into the Enneagram Uh, But I am, and what the Enneagram 3 means specifically is it's the type of person who's known as the achiever, the performer, the person who feels like a lot of their self-worth is based on how other people see him. Ouch, right? So that's that's how a lot of my life has played out. I've been the achiever performer for a long time, and I know that because my life has sort of looked like a series of stages. I've walked and done some pretty ridiculous things to try and gain the approval of some people around me through some stages, and unfortunately, I took a lot of pictures during those stages too, Uh, so I have a few of them to share with you today. The first one is what I like to refer to as the thuggin' stage, and I was repping that look pretty hard. Sideways hat, Hollister, come on. You know some of you were were that. Uh, There's actually a do-rag, if you look close enough, on my head in that one as well, and then that led well into, with the rise of Twitter, the plankin' stage, where I would just plank anywhere and everywhere that I could. Um, And then I met a girl. I met a girl. And her name was Cammie. And Cammie was something that I was not uh, country. Very, very country. Horses, farm, the whole thing. So what did I do? Just own my own identity and pretend to, or keep on being me? No, I walked down to Carter's and bought a pair of boots and a hat. And that is the one picture that I didn't delete from that stage. And I'm kind of sad about it. And then finally, growing up in Baytown, Texas... Where you at, Michael? Uh, Basically meant that I walked through a fishing stage. And that's the last stage. And I really just shared those because I I more wanted to show off my fish. Um, But the reason that I I share these is because the, the sad truth behind all of those stages is this. In every single one of them, I was doing those ridiculous things because I wanted to gain the approval of the people around me. And I thought that's what was necessary. I thought gaining their approval meant that. And here's the thing that I want to talk to you guys about this morning. We do the exact same thing with the Lord of the universe. We're all asking ourselves this huge question. How do I gain God's approval? What's it take to have his approval? And just like I did in all of those instances, we run to all kinds of ridiculous dead end sources. So some guys are actually going to bring up a a whiteboard that sort of has a map of our scriptures today. And it describes some of the ways that we try and gain God's approval. Some of the places that we go, the things that we do to do so. The first of which is comparison. We run to comparison thinking that if I'm able to look at me and then look at them and say, well, at least I'm not doing that. At least I'm doing better than them that will gain God's approval. We think that by Uh, doing enough stuff that we can serve God or do good things for his kingdom, that that will gain us God's approval. Or we think that by knowing enough information about religion and Christianity that we'll gain God's approval. But ultimately, here's the reality that we need to know today. Every single one of those options comes up short. 
And we're in the second chapter of Romans, the second week of our Unashamed series. And we're talking about, man, how Paul is addressing a group of people who are trying to find God's approval in all of these exact same ways. But ultimately, he's going to share with us, to spoil all of it, he's going to share with us that it's not by comparing ourselves, it's not by doing, and it's not by knowing that we'll ever gain God's approval. It's only by the finished work of the risen Jesus that we will gain God's approval. Amen? And, uh, man, we're not, lo- we're not living for God's approval anymore. We are living from God's approval, and that's good news. So if you've got a Bible today, join me in Romans chapter 2, um, and we're going to talk about it. As you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of context of the book of Romans. Just fill you in. So, Romans is written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Rome. And there was a big issue in the church in Rome previously, a few decades before Paul wrote this letter, in that the church was pretty heavily both Jewish and Gentile, and they were sort of butting heads for a while. And then this guy named Emperor Claudius came to, came to rule, and he actually kicked out all of the Jewish believers. He said, you got to go. And he sent them out of Rome. They weren't allowed to live there anymore. So, for a few years, the church was very Gentile. There were no more Jewish roots anymore, and the church started to look more and more and more and more Gentile. Um, So, eventually, Emperor Claudius actually died, and all of the Jews were then allowed to come back. And what they came back, when they came back, they were like, this isn't our church. What have you done? And they were looking at it, and they had a huge problem with the ways that the Gentiles had been running the church. So the Apostle Paul, in his writing this, a big part of what he's doing is he's trying to bridge the gap between the Jews and the Gentiles who were not responding well, weren't sitting down to get coffee, trying to come to some solution. They hated each other. They despised each other. And Paul's method of going about presenting, presenting this gap-bridging option is to just present the gospel of Christ really, really clearly. So two weeks ago, uh, Jacob stood up here and shared... Uh, the first half of chapter 1 with you. And the big message of it is the gospel defines who we are and what we do. It's great news. It's great news at the front half of the chapter. But then if you know Romans, uh, you know that it quickly takes a downward turn. And the second half of chapter 1 describes, man, how we are all sinners. And it just describes God's wrath again and again and again. And it keeps telling about how bad of a job we were doing and how desperately in need of something other than ourselves we were. So much so that the end of chapter 1 ends just like this. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, And this is brutal. This is bad, bad news because what the audience is intended to hear is I've done those things, at least one of them. I've never escaped all of them. But Paul anticipates the response of his audience. And he knows that those Jewish believers aren't just going to sit there and say like, oh man, you're right. But instead, they're going to jump on his side. And they're going to say, yeah, Paul, you get those Gentile dogs. You get them, tell them about their sin, call out their sin. They're not thinking that this is talking about us, They're th- about themselves. They're thinking that these verses are talking about some other group. So what Paul does next is he says, no. And he points a finger at the Jewish believers, and he says, you too. And for the next 16 verses, he obliterates the three falsely held assumptions that the Jewish believers had about gaining God's approval. He obliterates them. So if you've got a Bible, jump in with me in Romans 2, chapter 1, right now. 
says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them for yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on uh, the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The first wrong thing that we run to to try and earn God's approval is comparison. Comparison. Comparing ourselves. I remember when Hannah and I went on our uh, honeymoon to Costa Rica. If you've ever been to Costa Rica, you know that there are monkeys everywhere. Everywhere. And they had these really cute ones called capuchin monkeys. And everyone loved these things because it was like, oh, it'll come up right next to you. This, this was the breed of monkey, the brand of monkey, brand of monkey, that would get really close to you. Um, so they would come up close, and you're like, oh, it wants me to pet him like a little dog. And then, boom, it has your wallet, and it's up a tree. Just like that. That was the pattern. But in Costa Rica, there was a story of a guy who actually looked at them and said, I can make something of this. And he was a creepy hermit deep in the Costa Rican jungle. I'm not making this story up. So what he did, he must have done his undergrad in psychology or something. But by, ri- yeah. but by either punishing or rewarding these monkeys, he trained them to go to this heavily commercialized beach to gather cameras and phones and wallets and to bring them back to his jungle. I mean, back to his uh, cabin in the jungle, deep in the jungle. So the police started getting all of these calls from people, and it was ridiculous. They were like, a monkey just stole my camera. Of what value is a camera to a monkey? And the police had to launch this giant investigation where they like chased monkeys through the woods. And I I can't imagine that was an easy process. Um, But eventually, they ended up finding this guy's house deep within the woods and found just a a mound of cameras and other people's stuff. And I tell you that story because this creepy hermit in the woods, his entire livelihood was based on other people's stuff. It was all about other people's stuff. And comparison plays that exact same game with us. So let's think about who Paul is addressing right here. Most scholars agree that it was the self-righteous Jew. He's looking at the self-righteous Jew, the one who uh, compares other people to himself and then judges them and says, I'm better. The judgmental person is who Paul is speaking to. And I just want to break the ice and say, man, he's talking to me. Like I read this and instantly know if I always escaped being judgmental, man, I, I haven't. So Paul's talking to me right here. So what's, what's he end up saying about me? He says this. He says that, For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the exact same thing. He says that the one who is judgmental is in reality just as guilty. Just as guilty. But he anticipates what the Jewish believers would say in response to this. They're going to say, but wait, wait a minute. I'm not not murdering. I'm not stealing things. I'm not sleeping with my girlfriend. I'm not going out on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night to the bars. I'm not doing the bad, bad stuff. Like, how could you say I'm, I'm just as bad as them? And Paul says, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. Look back at the end of chapter 1, those, those rough verses that, that we read about. It's called Paul's laundry list of sins. He says that there was unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, 
uh, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slandering, hating of God, insolent, insolence, haughtiness, boastful, being inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Basically, the point is no one has ever escaped, escaped every single one of those. We have all at one point fallen into one of these sins in one way or another. And Paul's saying, you think you escaped those? Wrong. Think about Jesus' words in Matthew when he's up up on the mountain delivering what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. He lays out his standards and says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Jesus is saying, my standard isn't just don't murder. My standard is don't get mad. Don't get mad. And then he goes on a few verses later and says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman and has lustful intent in his heart has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Man, the, the standards of Jesus when stacked up against our standards are very, very different. He's not just looking on the outside, he's looking on the inside. On the inside. So when we look at this, this should, this should man, stir in us a, a desperation. And here's the hard truth. It doesn't for a lot of people. And it says that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. The people who look at others, compare them to themselves, and see themselves as better, and therefore approved by God, are just as guilty. Why? Because the standard of God is perfection. When stacked up against God's righteousness, all of us pale. We all pale. So, man, why don't we see it? Why don't people see it? Look back just at verse 5. Paul says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment shall be revealed. Here's what Paul's saying. If you think that you can compare yourself into God's approval, you're mistaken. Comparison will never, ever gain you God's approval. It won't. If your argument is, man, at least I didn't do that. Or if your argument was, well, I was in five Christian orgs and he was only in three, so I'm, I must be better. Or if your argument is, hey, I didn't, I didn't go too far with her, but he's like living with her, so I must be in a better spot. Man, you've got a faulty argument. If it's based on someone else, it's a faulty argument. And this is what Paul said. So this brings us to the question of how do we fight this kind of comparison? How do we fight it? How do we fight comparison in our lives? And I just want to offer two ways. We've got to know our triggers, and we've got to target our triggers. We have to. Here's what... Uh, psychology today says about social media. Social media is a turbocharged precision instrument for social comparison unlike anything in human history. Part of its uniqueness, researchers point out, is that it paints a heavily skewed picture of one's social universe. People are most likely to share peak experiences and flattering news about themselves, what one psychologist calls everyone else's highlight reel. And I know I'm not blowing any minds by saying that social media leads to comparison. But man, you've got to know if that's something that exists in your life. And then another way that I saw it in my life was class. It was class specifically when I was a student. I would go around and um, if I ended up in a group with four people who didn't know Jesus, instead of thinking, hey, how can I share the love of Jesus with them? I would think, God, I must be approved because I'm not living like that. Can you see how twisted of, of... Uh, thinking, that is. It's so twisted. 
We've got to know our triggers, know what causes this in us, and we've got to fight. We have to target our triggers. If it's some kind of social gathering or uh, Christian events or anything that makes us uh, boil with comparison, maybe memorize Jesus' words in Matthew 7 where he says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't see the plank that's in your own eye? Memorize those words. I've seen people who write them out, write the first letter of a verse out on their hand, So when they start to realize I'm falling into comparison, they look at their hand and remember God's truth. If it's social media, maybe now's the time to take a break. Maybe you need to hear that now is the time to take a break from social media. We have to know and target our triggers. And Paul has immense compassion for the people who think that they're approved by God because they've been able to compare themselves to some other people. But he knows that that's not the only argument that's going to be made by the, by the Jewish believers. So he goes on. Uh, because he anticipates what their response is going to be. They're going to say, okay, so, so maybe I don't get God's approval by just not doing that or by being better than them. But look at all the stuff that I do. Look at the good stuff that I do for you, God. That must gain me God's approval. And God says, you want to, or Paul says, you want to go there? Fine, we'll, we'll go there. So look at the next couple of verses. It says that he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience uh, and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. The second way we try and gain God's approval is by doing. By doing. And man, what's this verse, what do these verses present us with? They give us two options. You can see. They say you can either be judged righteous, you're deemed righteous, and you get God's honor, God's glory, and the approval of God. You're judged righteous and you get it. Or you're judged unrighteous and you get wrath and indignation. That's a big word that doesn't sound good. So we obviously know that we want to be in group number one. We want to find ourselves in group number one. Uh, So Paul tells us how, fortunately. He gives us a how. So if you look back at verse 7, it says that to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. And this is an interesting translation because the, the word patience in the Greek is actually the Greek word hupumone. And here's the definition for it. It's that... It's steadfastness, constance, endurance. It's the characteristic of a man who is not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. It carries the idea of coming up under something and remaining there and never leaving no matter the costs. So what's Paul saying here? He says in order to gain God's approval by your actions, you have to be unswervingly good always. Unswervingly good always. And it's clear that none of us will ever, will ever measure up to that. This was Hannah and I's first summer uh, living in College Station, specifically. I don't know if any of you guys have spent a summer in Bryan College Station. It's glorious. You just float up to the front of the Torchies line, order your taco, and get it in four minutes. I could get on Texas from Bryan, we're Bryanites, and drive all the way down Texas to Grace and get there in nine and a half minutes. I had it timed. It's a science. Nine and a half minutes. I could do it every time. But then, mid-August rolled around. And all of the students returned. And don't get me wrong, I'm in college ministry. I'm so glad you guys are back. Uh, 
but you brought your cars. And what that meant was that it no longer became a possibility for me to get from Brian to Grace in nine and a half minutes. It, was, it wasn't practically true anymore. It was theoretically true that I could hop on the road, hit all green light, green light, green light, green light, and get there in nine and a half, but it wasn't practically true by any means. Man, and this is exactly what these verses are saying. It's theoretically true that we can gain God's approval by being unswervingly good always, but it's not practically true for us, except for one guy. There's one exception. For us, every single one of us, we don't earn a B, we don't earn a C, and we don't even earn a D because D is passing at A&M for some reason. We all earn an F on God's standard, on God's test of perfection and righteousness. We all earn an F every single time, every single time. But there is one man who earned an A+, plus, a 100%, and that man is Jesus. So therefore, this is not a hypothetical situation. It's technically true that by doing, we can gain God's approval, but we never will. We never will. We'll never do enough to gain God's approval. And man, what that looks like for us is we begrudgingly do things for God because we think it's a requirement of our faith. We go to church or breakaway because we're like, man, I I have to. It's what I have to do as a Christian. We serve God through organizations or grace work projects or Habitat for Humanity or whatever it is, thinking that we have to. It's a begrudging obligation. And it leads us into this trap that if we fail, if we don't do enough good, man, we're not going to, God's going to be disappointed in us. He's going to be disappointed in us. But that's not what he wants you to see here. And these verses are establishing that. These verses are establishing that. Ultimately, the things that we do will never be enough. And if we try and make them enough, then it's just going to lead us to frustration. But it'll lead us to thankfulness if we realize it's never by doing enough that we will, we will gain God's approval. Man, there's one more argument that Paul anticipates. He says, hey, what about... Or they say, what about this argument? Man, so maybe it's not by comparing ourselves. Maybe it's not by doing enough stuff that we gain God's approval. But you, you chose us, God. You chose us, the Jewish believers, to be your, you called us your covenant people. The people who are supposed to represent you to the world. You gave us the law. In an act of love, you gave us the law. It said, follow me and I'll bless you. You gave us this. Wouldn't, doesn't that make us special? Doesn't that gain us your approval? The fact that we have the law? We can know you. But he says, you want to go there? Okay, let's go there. It says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of man by Christ Jesus. The third way that we try and gain God's approval is by knowing. By knowing things about Christianity, about religion, we think that that's going to gain us God's approval. But what's Paul say? What's he speak into that? He says that there is no partiality in my courtroom. And in fact, if the Jews have the law, they're held to a higher standard because they know even more. You're judged on what you have, 
But the Gentiles didn't have it. So they were judged on their conscience. Jews, conscience plus law. That's bad. It's bad news for them. And Paul's point here is that you cannot gain God's approval by just knowing things. By knowing a little bit about Christianity or by growing up around Christian people or in a Christian household, that's not going to gain you salvation or God's approval. It won't. It won't. It's not by knowing things that you gain that. It's not. It's not. You need more. Well, this has been brutal. Paul has put his reader through the ringer. The situation is, the writing style is known as diatribe, which means one person poses an argument and uh, Paul bats it down. So for the Jews, this would be a brutal spot. And they would have heard this and they would have legitimately thought, my entire life is based on comparing myself, doing things, or knowing enough information. This is bad news. And you know what Paul hasn't done in these verses? He hasn't provided a way out. This would lead to a situation of absolute, utter hopelessness for the Jewish believer. I remember when I bought Hannah's engagement ring, um, I went to, to this jeweler and they, and they showed me the diamond. They said, can you see it? And I said, no, it's very small. I have little money. <laughs> so what they did was on a table in front of me, they laid out a black cloth and they laid this diamond against it. And then they brought a magnifying glass so I could see it. And as I looked through it, I realized that the full beauty of this thing was able, I was able to see the full beauty of this thing because they magnified it and put it against a dark, dark cloth. And that's exactly what Paul's done for us here. He's created in us an absolute desperation for the grace of God. So let me just bring us back to the message that Jacob shared two weeks ago in chapter 1. Paul just writes this. He says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. What's it mean? It means that there's one man who came and lived and earned an A+, and he said that my A+, can be your A+, if you trust in me. He came and he lived the perfect life, Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect life on this earth. And then people put him up on a cross because we earn F's and that's the greatest F. We put him up on a cross and we earn that, but he hung there for us on our behalf and he died and he said he took the comparing, the doing, and the knowing that we think earned us salvation. He took it with him. He died for all of it, but he didn't stay there. Three days later, he actually rose from that grave and conquered every single bit of it. He said the the victory over death, over comparing, over doing, over knowing is mine. He had claimed full and final victory over all of it and said, if you want my death to cover your death and you want the acceptance, the approval of God, let me just tell you, it's by trusting. It's only by trusting in me that you will ever, ever have my approval. So men, for some of us in this room, this is, this is news that we've heard before. For some of us, we're just reminded, hey, this is... This has huge implications for the way that I live. I have to quit living like I'm comparing, like comparing myself is so significant. I've got to quit living like doing things is what's going to earn me God's approval or knowing things. For some of us, we just need to be reminded of that today, that this is a practical living issue. But Paul was writing to people who this wasn't a practical living issue for. The Jewish believers who he was writing to thought that their salvation was dependent upon this. 
They thought that they were going to be saved by comparing themselves, by doing enough, or by knowing enough. And I I think that maybe some of us in this room today need to hear that same message. That we can't compare ourselves into God's approval. It's not by being better than that person or by doing a little bit better that we'll get God's approval. It's not by doing enough because we'll never do enough that we'll gain God's approval. It's not by just knowing the basics, knowing a little bit about Christianity that we will ever gain God's approval. But it's about knowing Jesus Christ and trusting him. The only way that we will ever gain God's approval is by trusting in the crucified and risen Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for this, for this morning, for this truth. Lord, I just, I just want to pray right now that if, if I've said anything that's untrue, that it's forgotten. Man, that every little bit of this is, is just dropped on deaf ears. But God, if I have said something that is truthful and that they need to hear, God, that they would walk out of here and remember it and hold fast to it. Lord, I pray for your truth to be piercing like it already is. I know that it is, God. I know that it is. And if you're in this room today and you're like, man, I thought it was by comparing by doing or by knowing that I gained God's approval and you're realizing that it's not and I just want to invite you to take a step in trusting Jesus for the first time just trust him quit trying to live for his approval and jump in with us and live from the approval of God because how great and how freeing a thing it is to do so Lord thank you for this morning I pray that your your truth would pierce us and that we would walk out of here changed. Pray God now that we would respond boldly in worship. We give it all to you. In Christ's name we pray.